Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to make a start. Um, Nicholas Sorota, Director of the Tate, but I'm here in my capacity as an ODA board member. And I'd like to welcome you all to the LSE this evening. I'd like to welcome you also to a project which has been an event that has been organized by um, LSE Cities under the uh, directorship, of course, of Ricky Burdett. Uh, but I'd also like to thank uh, the rest of his team, who include um, Jonas Shaw, um, Emma Rees, and Tessa Norton. Um, I'd like to remind you all, if you would, to turn off your mobiles. And um, we meet today um, some 73 days, I'm reminded, before the Olympic Games begin. Over the past seven years, an enormous number of individuals have been working together to realize um, a, a, both a site, a park, and a set of buildings for the Olympics. And we're here uh, today to discuss um, how those have come about, um, to try and raise some of the issues that that construction project has uh, provoked, and to try and learn some of the lessons over the, of those last uh, seven years. Last week, some 40,000 Londoners visited the Olympic Park for the first time. Um, and the mayor, the newly elected mayor, unveiled uh, the ArcelorMittal orbit sculpture by Anish Kapoor with its viewing platform. But for most Londoners, it is the park and the buildings that will be both a permanent feature within that park and those that are a temporary element within the park during the Games and for some years after that will really register. Um, and we have uh, today some of the key protagonists in the project here to discuss um, their work and the lessons that they have learned. And it's one of the first occasions that we've had, I think, to reflect on um, this massive urban renewal project uh, within London. We're going to be focused really on, at this stage, on the buildings, um, there will be another session hosted by LSE Cities in the autumn where we're going to be talking more about the urban master plan. But we do have with us today, as I'll mention, um, obviously Andy Altman um, as chief executive of the Legacy Company who will be taking forward and developing that master plan and uh, developing the park um, over the next uh, 10 or so years. Um, my role, as I mentioned, has, was to be on the ODA board. I was asked to come on and be a design champion um, in a circumstance where design was clearly valued, but perhaps and, and conceivably not valued enough to warrant the kind of expenditure on buildings and projects that would have been envisaged, for instance, in Beijing and elsewhere. This was always intended to be uh, a sustainable games and a games that was achieved at lower cost than had we had seen in China and indeed elsewhere. And it was always intended that the games sh should leave behind a legacy, not of white elephants clearly, but of buildings that would be of value to the community and would have a place in the community 
uh, in the years ahead. And that is why the decision was made very early on to have some of the buildings as permanent structures, others as temporary. Um, we have here now today um, a number of those architects involved in creating both the permanent and the temporary structures. But we're going to lead off with a short presentation by Ricky Burdett. Ricky will be known to many of you, but was also um, for a four-year period from 2006 to 2010, Chief Advisor on Architecture and Urbanism to the ODA. And he will, in a sense, set the scene. You have to remember that the Olympic Park and what was planned and has been built in East London is not the product simply of an initiative to create a site for the Olympic Games. This is, in a way, the culmination, or if you like, an intermediate <coughs> step, but a very, very big step, in the renewal of the whole of East London. And the LDA, the London Development Agency, the Mayor and others had been working towards a renewal over a, a number of years, well ahead of the <coughs> successful bid in 2005. And I think Ricky will touch on that. He will be followed by Jim Heverin, and as you will have observed, sadly Zaha Hadid could not be here this evening. She had to fly to China, I'm afraid. But Jim was the lead designer on the Aquatic Center, and he will talk about his experience in working on that project. That was a project that was not uh, commissioned directly by the ODA. It was commissioned even before the successful bid and was intended the Aquatic Center to be a permanent building within, within East London, irrespective of whether or not there would be an Olympic Games. So the ODA inherited that commission, inherited the responsibility to build. Following Jim will be another Jim, Jim Eyre of Wilkinson Eyre, who was the lead designer, the architect on the basketball arena, the largest of the temporary buildings. And finally, we'll hear from Mike Taylor, lead architect on the construction of the velodrome for Michael Hopkins Architect. They will each make short presentations. We'll follow that with some short questions and answers, probably from the audience, although I might interject a few questions myself. And we will then move on to invite Andy Altman, Chief Executive of the Legacy Company, to say something about the plans for the next few years, and we will then have a general discussion. So with that, perhaps I could invite Ricky to set the scene. Thank you. Thank you very much. If I could have the first slide and the lights down. Do I just do that? Yes, perfect. And could these lights go down? Do I need to do something here? Someone's going to do it, if we could just turn the lights down. Now, in uh, talking first, I'm really hogging territory which belongs to many other people in this room. Uh, from all the master planners and uh, the clients who were involved from the beginning uh, of this project, Nick has already alluded to the fact that there are many different agencies uh, involved. I'm also hogging the territory of the uh, OPLC, the Olympic Park Legacy Company, which transmuted itself into uh, the Development Corporation, 
uh, only a few weeks ago, in trying to tell a sort of cohesive story of what has happened. And it's not by chance that I start uh, in talking about something called the architecture, in inverted commas, of the Olympics with a slide which shows you a piece of the A to Z, very familiar to everyone in this room, whether you're Londoners or newcomers. And immediately that says something about the whole approach and what the story is about. The Olympics project in London is about creating a piece of city, and I'm going to come back to the slide at the very end. But just notice it and see that uh, the site, which has uh, got all these yellow motorways and things around it, uh, if you half close your eyes or if you're in the back of the room, maybe feels a little bit like the rest of London. And that's not what it was like about seven or eight years ago when this project started. And that really is the story in a nutshell. How do you go from this uh, to where we are now to where we might be in, say, 15 uh, years or so uh, uh, from now? Now, if we just look carefully at this image, taken something like uh, 2005 when the bid was won, you can begin to see one or two really important things which any master planner, anyone interested in making a piece of city would observe very carefully. First of all, there's a massive transport hub buried somewhere there. I'll come back to that. Secondly, there's a large area of empty land. That's heaven if you want to develop, right? And with very few residential uh, um, occupants. A large amount of sort of uh, uh, industry, which you see in the foreground, but also very importantly, you see way from the back, the Hackney Marshes, a series of green connected landscapes with water running through it, which you see over there, canals coming down, linking further south towards the River Thames. These are the ingredients of this project. What you see now, and I'll come back to this, as will the three architects and Andy Altman after me, you see what is there today. This is already an extraordinary transformation in only seven years. What you see, one of the major routes of water in the middle, with the beginnings of this great new park called the Queen Elizabeth Park, and three or four of the buildings that are going to be discussed today. But the most important step is how you get from this to this. All that has been done by the many architects and the many clients and engineers and others working on this is create the veins, the infrastructure of making the sort of city that might happen there over time. Just look, for example, where those two blue things are on the right, which are temporary hockey stadiums. The idea of the master planners, Allies and Morrison and Eocom and others with KCAP is to replace the blue bits, which you see there, with housing, which will face a wonderful new park of London. The story also has a timeline to it. The IOC, the Olympic Committee, decides every seven years who to give uh, the uh, project to, and you only have seven years left. That's not a long time to create a major piece of city, and that's what happens to Rio and other cities. So there were seven years to go, and the decision was made already that the events would be distributed across London, but with a focus uh, on Stratford, the Lower Lee Valley, which you see on the far right of your slide. Now, one thing that defines London's games is what it isn't. And what it isn't is trying to do what Beijing did last time. Beijing needed to put itself on the map at many levels. It hadn't built a major stadium uh, for about 40 or 50 years for 100,000 people, so it got Herzog and Demeron, I think one of the best architects in the world, to build the bird's nest. But at the same time, they were building things like the CCTV headquarters, which you see down at the bottom, in order to make a statement about the new China, the new confidence. 
The other things we all looked at very carefully is what to do and what not to do. And on the left of the slide, you see Munich, you see Barcelona, uh, good models which have really left something behind for the inhabitants of the cities where those events were held many years ago. What we also looked at carefully is what not to do. And it's a bit unfair to anyone who is close as I am to Greece. They're having a very tough time at the moment. But, you know, to design a Taekwondo stadium only for Taekwondo, which you see there, very nicely designed, that no one can use after the games, that's what you get, a waste of infrastructure and a waste of investment. So the idea was not to do that and to choose a site that was well-connected and, as Ken Livingston said, actually needed the money, the $9.3 to actually do something to it. Now, this is an extraordinary map, which you don't normally get in sort of architectural and urban uh, design debates. It shows in the darker green the deprivation of London just a few years ago. So the darker the color, the worse off uh, the areas in terms of unemployment, in terms of health uh, indicators and many other things. And you'll see that the yellow bit, which is the site we're talking about, is actually in this area which is surrounded by some of the worst wards in terms of deprivation, not just in London but in the whole of England. And of course these are the wards in the boroughs of Hackney, of Tower Hamlets, of Newham. And as Nick has already said, and we don't have time to go into this, London policy, not just for the last 10, 15 years, but probably for the last 20, 30 years, has been trying to sort of shift the emphasis of investment eastwards and northeastwards in areas where there's a lot of land uh, and there's um, the possibility of sort of rebalancing uh, the economy of London. What you see from this slide is that West London, the colors are slightly less dark, is much better off, less deprived than East London. That's sort of the issue. And just look at this extraordinary slide. If you happen to take the Jubilee Line from Westminster Station, a person of my age can expect to live in that area to 77. Every tube stop you take going east, you actually lose a year in life expectancy. This is a dramatic difference sort of cast in stone. So what can an Olympics event do about that? Well, it's not an easy thing, and this is clearly what many of us have been trying to work on. Well, the first thing which is obvious is that, yes, the site of Stratford is in East London, but it's also one of the better connected hubs in London. I don't need to go into it in detail, but it's about 10, 15 minutes actually from many areas of what we consider to be central London. So much so that a number of developers already in 2000 were eyeing the site as a lucrative place to build a new Canary Wharf, frankly. That's what was done. And we forget that in 2002, Nigel Hugo, one of the developers with Chelsfield, got planning permission for thousands of homes, a lot of development, and even a shopping center. And in 2011, as you know, Westfield East opened to, uh, whether we like it or not, whether we like shopping centers, I don't particularly, but that is a place which actually now delivers something like six, 7,000 jobs to the area. So this is a piecemeal story I'm giving. Not everything was planned by one visionary master planner or by one uh, 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 visionary uh, civic leader. It's very much the layers that Nick was talking about. Just think of this in terms of scale. That oval on the far right shows more or less the whole area of the Olympic sites. You can actually see the main stadium in white. If you go out of this building, and walk all the way up past the British Museum and all the way to King's Cross. That's the area we're talking about. And think how many things are there, how many housing, how many institutions, how many public and sort of private scenarios, parks and spaces. So that's the complexity that's actually been realized here. And it's built on these very, very simple 
uh, principles which I will now describe. The first thing, London is moving east. I've already described that. The second thing, there's this extraordinary connection, which Stephen Witherford and others have talked a lot about, of bringing nature into the city. There's that green strip with water and parks, which takes us all the way up a corridor to, in fact, the north of England, and comes down with its waterways to actually meet the River Thames. But what you also see here is this combination of sort of uh, romantic scenery in the middle of the city, uh, but also with electricity pylons, because this has been for hundreds of years the backwater of London. And to move electricity pylons costs two to three hundred million pounds. How are you going to do that? You win the Olympics and spend some of that budget. And that's basically what Ken Livingston said. He didn't get elected as a result, but there we go. Um, uh, other things which are clearly important to this discussion is not just the physical infrastructure, but the human infrastructure, the very vibrant communities of uh, waves of immigration from all over the world that inhabit the areas at 360 degrees around the site. But this is what the area actually looked like only a few years ago. These are the organizations that were involved. We don't have time to go through that. But I think the important thing, we've already uh, mentioned this, is that the land is actually owned effectively on behalf of us, on behalf of Londoners, on, on behalf of the taxpayer, by the mayor's organization, which Andy um, Altman uh, chair, uh, is the chief executive. And it sits across the four boroughs that you see there. And I'm sure we'll have a chance to talk about that. And the master plans which have been developed by Allies and Morris and others have very much tried to think what happens now, but also what happens in the future. Now, just a small anecdote before I present the master plan and move on to the other presentations. The Brits win Olympics in sports when they're sitting down. <laughs> I don't know if you knew that, but they win medals in rowing, horseback riding, sailing, and cycling. So, might as well build buildings for the next generation of those who are going to build, uh, are going to win medals. Now, that's a sort of joke, but it's really about thinking of legacy all the way around. You know, what is it we need in London, and where is that investment being made? Now, Nick and myself and many others worked on a series of competitions for the Olympic Delivery Authority on all these um, uh, venues that you see there. And it was based on this very simple idea that the master planners came up. The event is a closed event for two weeks, but then it needs to go back and become part of the city. This is how architects like to represent the same idea. Very simple, very powerful, restitch the communities and the fabric around it. So here's how it actually works. There is already a fantastic network of water and uh, green. So take the wider site. Uh, over there is the main station, uh, International Station of Stratford. This is the major shopping center over here surrounded by all these roads and motorways and everything else. But at the heart of it is the possibility of a great park, the Queen Elizabeth Park. That's what it looks like, the slightly romanticized view, but that's actually what it feels like when you're there. You can see that it was taken a few months ago because the orbit wasn't completed, and that's a view from above. The second thing is take this area and connect it. There was only one road actually going through it. So there have been a number of investments made in physical infrastructure, bridges, walkways, and other things, connecting the site, particularly east and west, very difficult to the north, and pretty tough on the south. That's why you see from this image uh, bridges cutting across the waters, sort of flying over the canals and the connections. You also see an important point down at the bottom, uh, that the bridges are designed 
for the Olympic Games, very wide, 50 meters wide, right, to take maybe 100,000 people, not have any crushing. But then the bit nearer to us, nearer to you, is taken away so that you get a reduced bridge. Now, that costs more money to do that. But that's not to have an overscaled and banal and empty space for the community that remains. The other thing is around the transport hub, do two things, create jobs, Andy will talk about that, and build houses. This is what the Olympic Village is beginning to look like. Half of it is roughly social and affordable housing. Half of it has just been bought by a private uh, consortium for housing for rent. The other big issue, which is being decided, I think, now, is what happens to the future of the press center, which will be another place on the top left of the site with uh, creates jobs. Now, these are probably the most important slides which summarize what the London Olympic Games strategy is about. Why build a basketball stadium? Jim Eyre will talk about it, if we don't play basketball. Um, there's no point. It's an enormous structure. Why build a water polo thing? You know, with this weather? Come on, are we serious? Uh, and so the story goes on. So the idea is you've cleaned up the land, you've created the infrastructure, build all the things that you don't need as a temporary, design them in that way so they can be moved on or relocated, and we'll hear that. Uh, but then, you know, there's a hockey stadium, just move it on or sell it on to someone else. Now then, when you take it away, you have land which has been cleaned up, it's accessible, and it provides the opportunity for housing. The other thing is keep the things you actually need. Now, London, bizarrely, has not had a, an Olympic-sized swimming pool for many, many years. Um, and uh, the one that was there wasn't um, uh, up to standards, so that is the Zaha Hadid scheme which is there. We don't have in London a velodrome, uh, even though we're winning medals, so that is another permanent structure not to mention housing, of which there is enormous need in London and the other structures that you see there. So only a few are actually permanent, and that's one of them. And now you see the three buildings which are going to be presented by the architects after me. This is the most important slide of the whole presentation, because it basically shows what happens after 2013. It shows where there were stadia, where there were temporary things, basically pinkish, purplish areas, empty areas. And that's where Andy Altman and his team will actually be developing competitions, bringing in the market for mixed neighborhoods with housing, uh, schools, and other facilities. That is very much building on the DNA of what has been there. And that's what this master plan uh, really is about. It extends its tentacles sort of outwards, not because that's automatically going to create a sort of happy community in East London. We're not that naive, any of us. But at least what it's possibly going to do is create the physical infrastructure which can support the sort of diversity and complexity that cities need. To that add schools, energy, and health centers, which I think are part of the picture. Let me end with three slides where effectively I started. If you looked at the A to Z in 2005, you would find this. There's the big sort of ring road. There's only one road, Carpenter's Road, which cuts across the site. The rest of it is sort of more or less empty, as you see. Of course, there was industry and other activities. If you looked at a map today of 2012, this is what it would look like. But of course, you can't get in it because it's behind a security fence. The most important thing is to go back to what I showed you at the beginning, that you use the elements, the infrastructure, the strategy, which is both political and physical, of creating something that can grow and change over time to create a piece of city which builds on the venues and the uh, parks and the spaces that we'll now hear about. Thanks very much.
Thank you, Ricky. My name is Jim Heverin from Zahadid Architects. And again, apologies for Zaha. She had to go for China at a quite short notice. Um, so I'll do my best to take you through the Aquatic Center. This I can kind of skip through quite quickly because Ricky has set the scene very well, basically. And I think before we came on board, and we were the first architects, I believe, to have uh, be appointed initially for the LDA. We won the competition in 2004. Uh, Thanks to, again to Ricky, who's on the jury, as well as a couple of others. But um, I think for us, it's been eight years that we've been working on this project. And it's a project where the parameters on some aspects have evolved. The master plan has changed quite considerably on some aspects. But at the same time, throughout, there has been kind of core issues that have been kept. And uh, we keep coming back to this core idea that Ricky outlined, basically, of first, you actually establish what you need for the next 30 to 50 to 100 years. You build that in a permanent manner. And then you actually adjust that to hold the gains, which are temporary, basically. And that was there. For us, in the brief, and I'll skip through these slides because <laughs> Ricky's always done them, but um, we won the competition in 2004 with this design. But actually, in this design, I suppose it's a mix of what uh, Ricky was outlining in Beijing, so a very, very large architectural statement, basically. But it also had the idea that the, the seating that you need for the aquatics for the Olympics should be demountable. So this part of that initial design is actually, it was there from the very beginning that those seats should be demountable. So you, you need a seating capacity. What the IOC is looking for is a seating capacity of 17,500 seats, a mixture of public and media, and that after the games you would demount them and you would actually leave a venue that's focused on swimming. And I think that went back to the core idea that Sebastian Coe was really outlining in Singapore, that this games should be about getting people to participate in sport. And again, a bit like a, if you take Ricky's analogy that we only win medals sitting down, it's actually to try and get the every, every, every one of us out there to try and encourage everyday use and everyday more enjoyment and involvement in sport, basically. And I think as architects, we are normally set with these kind of aspirational briefs which have many, many different types of level and it's our job to kind of bring them together in a single manifest form which um, encapsulates all of those different ideas basically. So for us, we tried to create a building that was very fluid and open, that would be a pavilion within the park, that would be very transparent, that would encourage people to come into it and use the swimming pools and that could be adapted to actually be used uh, for the Olympic Games, basically. And I think we have gone through a lot of iterations, but we have retained the core design that we showed to the IOC in 2005. So we won the competition, and uh, Zaha and the team, uh, we presented to the IOC when they came to London to assess the London bid. We presented that image that you see at the top, and they were very happy, and they were very happy with this plan that you see on uh, the right-hand side. Um, but, of course, when we won the bid, that then we went into a, a real period uh, where we weren't involved, but EDO, the master planners, working with the LTA, really started to interrogate the master plan and to try and drive in the ideas that actually you leave behind only what you need, basically. And that really 
came back to us as a brief in 2006 to really reduce the building and to expand it in a much more pragmatic way, basically. So to really cut down the architectural statement, if you, if you like, to cut down the overall volume and to modify it and to actually make it more compact and to work with other elements that needed to be built. So that you ended up with a very compact building that's left. And, and that has loads of benefits, but primarily the, the one is in terms of energy. It's a smaller volume and it's easier to maintain as a venue. But I think as a core internal field of play from the top to the bottom, I think you can see that we have delivered to what we showed the IOC um, in 2005. We've delivered that, that fluid type of space from the interior with this kind of dynamic um, seating expansion. And to do that, we've really switched from the top image where we had initially we had the idea of a, the permanent roof would float over the temporary stands. So that is the permanent roof. It's actually doing a very large cross span as well as a span in the long direction. Um, and then we fitted in these temporary stands underneath a permanent roof. And what we've built is to reduce the permanent roof to what we need for legacy. What we call legacy is what was after the Olympic Games, which is going to be there uh, forever after, hopefully. And to add on these two temporary stands, basically. And I think it should be noted that what Ricky was pointing out in terms of putting those pylons underground and making a site like this work is actually very, very difficult. These are brownfield sites which are contaminated. They have a, this site in particular is beside a, a river, so it actually has a very high water table. So um, conversely, when you're actually trying to dig down, the water is pushing up against it. It means you have to put a lot more energy and structure in to make a building work in this condition. And beneath um, the permanent roof structural support points, that is where the tunnels for those um, pylons that were taken off the skyline of London, which actually is a fantastic benefit. Anybody who knows the East End before, these pylons really were kind of an ugly remnant of the industrial past in that area. And to put them into the tunnels goes well beyond the red line boundary in that whole area. But the impact for us and our site was that we actually had to create a very complex foundation over um, the tunnels. And all of that you don't see, and you shouldn't see, but it should be appreciated um, that it's a type of development that takes that level of intensity and structure to make it work. So this is um, what we have built for the games. The permanent roof, which you can see coming out, and the temporary stands, which are added onto it. And afterwards, you get a more clean architectural statement and we're obviously not embarrassed at all about the fact that you have to make a compromise to get this, basically. I mean, to get the building that's going to last for generations, that's going to be open for everybody to use as a municipal swimming pool, which will expand overnight, which will double the capacity in London of adding two 50-metre pools to London, uh, when we already only have two compared to the nine that they have in Paris. So London is well under-resourced um, in terms of swimming pools, basically. And to get this type of venue, um, this was the type of compromise that we had to make where you mix temporary with permanent. And it, it really is the intention that afterwards the building sits as a pavilion with large glazed screens which allow daylight into the main pool hall. And hopefully um, the, the landscaping for the park will come as close as possible to the pool hall. So you get a real feeling that um, when you're swimming, you are quite close uh, to the park. 
and it really is quite a simple architectural statement of a roof which is manipulated in form to give you clues as to how the building is working. So this part of the roof cantilevers out to actually create the kind of gateway because this is on the axis in and out of Stratford to the Olympic uh, Park. Um, it just really kind of tips into it a little bit. It, it kind of tells you that the building is there and that this is an entry point. And the podium, the whole overall roof sits on a podium which is concrete and louvers and really fits into the rest of the master plan language. So the building is really quite simple in materials and we've tried to, um, although complex in some parts of the form, but we've really tried to achieve a high level of build qualities because for us, we think that that is where the public will see in the end, they will appreciate the quality that they see in a building, basically a public building, and particularly in an area like this where you don't have a lot of high quality uh, public buildings, not built in the last uh, couple of generations, basically. And I think that is something in the long term which uh, we hope will really be appreciated. And to achieve that within the parameters of a construction program where the contractor had to finish on a deadline was quite a remarkable achievement for uh, the contractor that we were working with and across the park, basically. So that, because it actually, you always have accidents on projects. You always have mistakes. And it requires a substantial team effort to rejig the program to be able to correct those mistakes to ensure that you have the overall quality at the end. In terms of the overall volume, I mean, the top part of the slide just gives you a sense of basically the total red box is what you need for uh, the games, and the smaller red box on the right-hand side is what we will leave behind, and there's obviously um, clear differences in terms of the amount of energy that's required to heat one and, and the actual scale of maintaining one compared to the other, basically, and it's almost 50% reduction in the building. And it's quite a clear, different strategy to Beijing, um, which almost built that red box for the Olympic Games for their water cube, basically. So for, in, for us, we have been really pushing down the permanent roof to compress the space as much as possible. And um, you, you can do that while still maintaining the sight lines onto the field of play. So you're not impacting on uh, the functionality of the venue for Olympics, except in the case that you, when you're sitting on that side, you cannot get a direct view across to the other spectator seating, which is unique. Um, but we actually think that it will add the intensity of the atmosphere because you're really focused onto the field of play. And when you look at the overall footprint of the building, we've done a similar exercise. So what you have on this side is the scale of the original footprint that we did when we weren't engaged with the client. It's quite common that when you're an architect and you get a brief and you don't have a dialogue, you just do the work. And, um, but you can see the fact that we have put one of the swimming pools underneath a bridge. We've halved the size of the permanent roof and we've really rationalized the temporary stands, basically. And all of that allows us to free up more site which will become development plots to the north and the south of uh, this venue, basically. So a lot of work has gone into designing this building in a way that leaves enough space around it which uh, buildings can be developed afterwards. And a lot of work has gone into incorporating that um, swimming pool. This is a training pool. These two pools are the competition pools, so this is what you'll see in the Olympic Games. Um, but this is the training pool that's necessary and because we put it underneath the bridge 
there is actually a concern and it is really the challenge to us to make that space under the bridge uh, habitable in a very pleasant way basically so we use the depth of the structure there to integrate lighting um, and other technical issues to create quite a diffuse and we think quite a pleasant space which nobody would feel or think initially that this is underneath a bridge um, it could, to come back to the overall main statement of the building in legacy after the games is the principle of the roof where you can see this form just during construction and how it will be afterwards. We decided to clad it all in timber so that you get, when you're close up, you get a, a scale and then as you step back you get the more monolithic feeling of the roof. And clearly the form is being manipulated to, I mean for us, manipulating the roof form is all about making the building work easier basically and to encapsulate those kind of core aspirations from the client. So th this idea of encouraging people to use the venue, it's obviously necessary to have it transparent and open so it encourages people to come into the building, encourages the park to come around it, and to have multiple entrances. Um, this is an entrance on the riverside, which would be the principal entrance into the venue, and, and to really to develop a language that fits into the wider park language, basically. So although part of this building is iconic, um, it really fits in. I think this gives you a sense of the complexity and the quality that was achieved in a very tight time frame. And I know nobody believes us, but there was actually a lot of what we call value engineering that is looking to make savings so that you can spend money elsewhere. This is the, the plan in games mode, just to go through it quickly, just to show you, obviously, it's quite different, but it is a necessary compromise. It's a compromise that we as architects fully embrace, basically, and we fully worked to get them um, as cost-effective as possible so that you could spend the money elsewhere on the permanent build, basically. And, and we're only recently now starting to think and getting engaged with uh, the LLDC and uh, Balfour Beatty to think about converting this building after the Games to its uh, legacy. But actually, for the Olympics, I think it's a very bright, vibrant, and dynamic uh, field of play, basically. Which, and this, this will be the image and some of the views from the seats you get this kind of intensity onto the field of play. And, and thankfully, the, the client, the ODA, really saw the diving boards as a moment where you could do something quite sculptural as a focus piece. And I think we're all quite happy. Just an overview. And hopefully, Tom will have a good games. And then we'll all be happy. I'm just going to hand over to Jim. Good evening, everybody. I've, um, I've never been to the Olympics, actually, and I, I was uh, slightly surprised that it wasn't a, a question that came up when we were uh, doing the interviews of the competition. And actually, you, do, you don't need to have been to the Olympics. But it's quite, in a way, it's, it's quite interesting that for most people, I expect for many people here, the Olympics is actually a televisual event. It's not an event that you experience. That's nothing particularly to do with it being difficult to get tickets. It's just that it's usually somewhere else in the world. But anyway, at last it's here. So doing a, a temporary building, I think, gives one a, a sort of slightly different take on the, the approach to the architecture. So I'm going to talk about the basketball stadium, which went through various iterations um, during the design process and various frustrations, of course. But I think, like many projects, there are, there are frustrations. 
to a certain extent, there was an aspiration in the architectural brief that was, had a, a sort of equal and opposite force from the financial constraints for the, um, for the project. So one couldn't do absolutely everything that, uh, that, that we'd hoped. Do you know where the basketball stadium is? It's the rectangular white box. So I'll talk a little bit about the design development and then show you the, um, the, the final scheme as it happened. The basic approach we took at, at the competition stage was, was that it had to be a build. There were lots of different ways you could achieve this building, this temporary building, and we didn't know exactly which the right one was, and we didn't think that there was an absolute solution that was, you know, if we show you this, we'll win. So this drawing here was quite important at the time, and it was this idea, if you just look at the top left, that, and this, in a way, the one on the top left is my sort of dream about how these things should happen, is that you, re, you reuse the building um, you know, for the intended purpose, and it goes off somewhere else, like Rio de Janeiro. You know, it would be wonderful, perhaps, if it did that. Another dream, of course, is that you could divide it up and use it for something completely different, top right. You know, maybe the building could be designed in such a way that it could become a series of sports halls for schools, say. Um, bottom left, you could reconfigure it in a completely different form. I mean, it probably wouldn't be a little pyramid like that. Or, bottom right, that it just gets broken down and, and recycled or burnt or whatever. You burnt to use and make energy. So it, it could have been any of those things. And as we got into it and we developed, the first thing that happened actually was that the, the stadium moved from where we thought it was going to be, it moved to a, a different site. But we looked at all sorts of options during the early stage of the design, so steel, wood, cables, you know, soft, even softwood structures, and there were different forms of structure. And there are lots of different ways, and they're surprisingly well matched um, in terms of the economics. The other thing, and the, the, those little diagrams, section diagrams, they're quite significant too, because normally with a big stadium or arena like this, there's 12,000 people, 12,000 seats, you'd like to get in about halfway up, just below halfway up, to get the easiest distribution into the seats. So one of the ways of doing that is to sink it down into the ground. We couldn't do that because of the legacy use. But, you know, the, the, the earth had been repaired. There was a soil hospital on site. They, the, the earth had been contaminated. It had to be repaired. So the last thing we wanted to do was dig down into it, and then you'd have to fill it all up again afterwards. And you, you'll see how the, how the design evolved to, to respond to that. So here's some images of some of those options. Um, top left is quite close to what, what actually happened. Top right was a scheme that we were pushing quite hard for. We really liked the idea that you could build this sort of geodesic structure, you know, Buckminster Fuller, you've probably heard of, that where every member would fit in a container, and then it could be taken off abroad and, you know, in just a handful of containers and, and, and be reused somewhere else. And the others, I, I won't talk about the others particularly because there's a lot to get through. But we were very analytical, perhaps more analytical than we normally are as architects. We normally try and decide what we actually want and then go for it. But this time, we, we, we really went for it with the, uh, with the engineers, uh, SKM, and, and looked at every single criteria we could think of um, and every kind of structure we could think of and scored them. Now, uh, just, we, were, we can't go into it, but green is good and uh, <laughs> orange is bad. And we did the same thing for the, for the way that the building would be clad. You know, what are all the different ways of doing it? Now, Curiously, the, the way that it actually is clad didn't appear on this particular um, thing. So we, we thought that PVC, or the PVC that was available at the time, was, was not suitable. 
but eventually a, a good PVC was found that could be recycled. So there's just a, some views of it. Now, what was happening, I won't talk about all the politics of it, but there was, a, there was a fear with the financial pressure that the building, which had to be a big black box, basically, internally, black out, blacked out box, would just end up being incredibly simple on the outside. So what we were showing on the right there is what we all called the plain vanilla. And I think there was a general acceptance, even amongst the cross people, that this was not acceptable. It's a very big building on a very prominent part of the site. So it kind of moved along. We, we carried these two schemes on through the design process. Um, the dome, I think people were worried about the dome because they weren't familiar with it. I mean, I was quite excited about it as a potential structure with, which created quite a lot of space around the edges, which I think would have been quite useful, especially if it rains. Um, well, we hope it doesn't. <laughs> but this, this slide, I think, illustrates that. So, in fact, it, it, it gets much tighter with the fabric-clad uh, simple structure. And then just these two slides show you it's next to the velodrome, which you'll hear about in a minute. That's the plain vanilla box, and that's the dome form. So they're pretty similar, really, in terms of the amount of space that they occupy. <coughs> so after that, we, we, we really, what happened was it was all, no dome. It's not going to be a dome. So, okay, I didn't walk off in a half because, you know, one likes to, it's a challenge. You have to keep going and, 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 and get something that really works. So we started looking at ways that we could clad this, these enormous facades. I mean, they're sort of 110 metres long, main facade, 110 metres by 24 metres high. So it's very, very big. I mean, to, it's about the size of Tate Modern. Looking at, if you're looking across the river, it's that sort of scale. <coughs> so we looked at, at this, this idea that I had that you could transpose an image onto it. And the way that one might do that is by using thousands of pieces of timber, planks, and just altering the spacing between the planks slightly to, to reproduce an image. And we were just experimenting with grass. And then here was another one where you have a face. But on that scale, it looks as if it would be something quite interesting. That proved quite scary as well. So, um, <laughs> But I, you know, I think it was, it was interesting. But uh, again, you know, one felt knocked back but actually again we don't give up we don't give up we've got to get something good out of it um, and this is the this is the final scheme with some slight adjustments and what you see is a you see it sort of exploded there and it, it can, it's it's quite a good way of showing it in a way because it's it's actually owned and, and procured in that way so different people own different parts of the building um, and, and, and that pretty much reflects how, how it is built so I'll talk about just firstly the structure. Big steel, very simple, lightweight frame. So it's 1,000 tonnes for 9,900 square metres. So it's a big, big volume. I think it's 300,000 cubic metres of space. You can easily get jumbo jets in there. So very lightweight. It's got those sort of hipped ends, so we get a constant eaves line all the way around the building, which I think is, makes it easier to deal with architecturally. I won't bore you to death with the foundations, but there is something quite interesting about them. But um, because it's a temporary building, we didn't want to put lots of piles in the ground that had to be pulled out because there's going to be housing on this site afterwards. So the engineers, SKM, worked out this way of, 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 of drilling down into the soil, putting the rocks in, and using that as a base that's strong enough to hold up the building. So when the building goes away, there's nothing that's, that's in the way, there's nothing that really needs to be removed. 
with the one exception being the field of play, which has to be uh, a much more stable and strong piece of um, concrete, basically. So the, the frame went up, and then it started to be uh, clad. Um, you can see the black lining on the inside. I mean, a really extraordinarily large space. Seating, supplied by a different contractor. Um, it's, uh, they're molded seats. They're pretty standard, and... Uh, they're supported on a, on a scaffolding frame. So it's all totally normal, in a sense, with temporary buildings. So the scaffolding just goes down to the ground, sits on plates. Um, you, you'd be surprised how many people you can support on, on that kind of uh, arrangement. The red bits, are the, these are the vomitories where you, you, you come through to get to the seating. Now, these are the bits that need to be fire protected. So it's very important to reduce the amount of that kind of thing where, where, where you have to enhance the structure with fire protection because it costs money. Seating, we also, you know, because there's a lot of changeover with basketball, you're going to match, then people go, and then another lot come in. There'll be periods when there aren't very many people in the stadium for, for, for short periods. And we had this idea that you, we could create a pattern out of the seating, do something interesting. And what evolved was, was using the logo, and I think it's been rolled out on, onto a number of, uh, of the other venues. So we've got orange and, orange and black in ours. The seats are also recyclable. They can be melted down and used again. So that's a, a, a rendering of, of it. It was partially a photograph and partly a rendering of, of the building. And it's quite tight and... Uh, you know, you feel very close to the action, and this is just a photograph from one of the um, test events. Field of play, environmentally, very important to get the right conditions, humidity, temperature, etc. So it's quite a highly serviced building, but all the, all the plant for that is also just hired in. Cladding. This was the, in a way, this was the ultimate challenge for us. Could we get something that would generate some interest? So there was a, a design that we did, which was really the exploded one I showed you at the beginning, which had quite a complex form in the, in, in the, in the membrane cladding. And we knew that it was really quite complex. I don't know if the <laughs> delivery partners knew just how complex it was. But the contractors were invited to come back with alternatives, and, and they didn't. What the lead contractor, the one that won it in the end, offered an alternative that involved sort of little arches, flat arches. If you can imagine, they're stacked up and they push the membrane out. But they only offered a relatively small reduction in price. So we were able to say, with the support of CLM, the, the delivery partners and the ODA, well, if we just change it, if we put these arches on angles, we can set something up and make it look more interesting. And they said, oh, no, we can't do that. But... Um, Oh, well, we'll just go back to the original then. And, no, 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 I think maybe we can do that. And so we did actually manage to get something that I, I think does have a real dynamism to it. And uh, I got really quite excited about the way that you, you get this sort of... Um, it's almost like a vertical landscape, a topography across the building where it's, things are sort of happening. It's, you could almost imagine it on its side as, as being rather an unusual form. And it's, it's good because it looks temporary. Um, it's PVC and I, I think it's, it's quite interesting but it's also one of the things it does I noticed when we were down there looking at it that it picks up the light in quite an extraordinary way this was just sort of late evening light when we were down there ready to do some lighting tests the actual plan I, I said before we had to get as much as we could out from underneath this building to, to minimise the uh, structures the, the cost of, of putting it in and the complexity so a lot of the sort of backup athletes facilities are off to the side here in this building 
which is a single-storey building. So only the loos and the stairs and the odd lift and so on are actually tucked in underneath the seating. There you see the, uh, the section. So ordinarily, you would have had a concourse at about this level. So we just have little bits of structure here to get you up to that level. And then you distribute to the seating. And those various elements are done very, very simply. Some of it's off-the-shelf temporary structure. Some of it's just you know, brightly coloured. Some of it's super graphics. But all things that uh, are relatively standard and can be removed and, and reused. You get a relatively small gap between the outside of the building and the what's called the wrap here, just about five metres or so. But really, that's all that's needed. It just means there's no, no space to, to wait. And then lighting. As I said at the beginning, I think it's a televisual event. I do think that, rather like aquatics at Beijing, we constantly saw it on the TV. Maybe we'll see this building. I think basketball is primetime American. So it'll be at night. I think quite a lot of it will be at night. And there will be an interesting lighting scheme which has been developed by uh, an outfit called Uni United Visual Artists. Um, and I haven't seen it yet, but we're looking forward to uh, seeing it. Thank you. Thanks very much. My name is Mike Taylor. Um, I'm an architect, work at Hopkins Architects, and with a team with some fantastic engineers, we've worked on the velodrome. Um, those stats at the bottom of that page tell you how terrifying it was to design a building for those athletes. Um, you have a weird paradox in that the cyclists are the most successful sport in Britain. Most of you in this room have probably never seen a race, let alone a velodrome or a track. So we had the honour of um, designing a velodrome for London, bringing the sport to the capital, um, and doing something worthy of the athletes. Um, and we set ourselves some really tough challenges. Jim has sort of hinted at the no, you can't do that attitude we had to challenge. Um, I haven't got time to talk about that, fortunately. Um, we said it really must be the best velodrome in the world. Um, there aren't that many compared to other sports. It's not that well defined, so we could rewrite the script. So really, the things that influence how well the venue performs from a sport point of view, the athletes, fine, we'll let them get on with it. They seem pretty good already. The equipment, the Manchester Velodrome team, the GB squad, have got a fantastic back-of-house team designing bikes, refining the technology. And the only thing in their way is the UCI, who keep changing the rules to stop Britain winning too much. The three things we could influence were the track, the environment, and by the environment I mean temperature, not so much on altitude, but air thickness is a big factor, and then the crowd. So I'm going to start off just talking about those three. Um, the track's not a fixed thing. There's different shapes of track. It must be 250 metres, um, and there's certain rules about the lines, but that's about it. There's two main track designers in the world, a German called Ralph Schumann, and an Australian, who lives in Staines, called Ron Webb. <laughs> It's quite clear we're going to go for Ron Webb. Um, <laughs> his tracks are slightly rounder and therefore quicker. The sprinters, as a matter of fact, prefer the Sherman tracks because they stay in the slipstream, come out of the bend on the last corner and have a longer straight to overtake the competitor. For all the other riders, like pursuiters, the slightly rounder track is faster because the bends are less tight. And Ron, you'd be in a meeting, you'd be arguing with Ron about what you could do, what you couldn't do. He'd go very quiet 
He'd open his briefcase, he'd put an A4 list on the table of world records on his track and tell you to shut up. So <laughs> we went with his track. Here it is going in. It's an amazing thing, beautiful piece of geometry. Um, it's simply seven meter lengths of wood and he changes, he sets that geometry out. No two tracks are the same. He changes his design like a yacht designer. Each time he tweaks it to make it faster. So this is a derivation of Athens, Sydney, Manchester, and he claims to be his fastest track yet. And that angle just changes and he tweaks it. And you saw on the previous slide, A and B, the corners are not the same. Going into the bend, coming out of the bend, slightly different. You don't really notice it until you try and design the seats. So you start with your carpenters. In eight weeks, they lay on these timber laths. They're 40 millimeters by 40 millimeters. They're nailed on by hand. Ron won't let anyone use a, a nail gun or anything like that. And you create this absolutely beautiful surface. It's a living thing. It moves. It's got no joints in it. The outside's about 75 meters longer than the inside. So when the humidity changes, it starts to flex. So that's the track. We, got a we knew we had a fantastic track. The next thing we could influence would be temperature and conditions. Um, all venues want fast tracks. London wants world records. Um, and actually, the cyclists have the venue very, very hot. The hotter it is, the thinner the air is, and they go faster. And they literally will sit there with their laptops in training, calculating humidity and temperature and equating it back to world record speeds. So we had to make this venue as hot as possible. If you're going at 50 kilometers an hour on a bike, you're not bothered about the temperature because you've got wind on you. If you're sat in the crowd, meanwhile, you, it's a different matter. And uh, there's a fair chance in July we might get some warm weather. So we had to balance spectator comfort and ensure the track was very hot. But we couldn't have drafts. We couldn't slow the cyclists down because it's not fair on you know, individual competitors to have air movement. So it's a real challenge. And with BDSP engineers, we worked very hard. What we came up with in the end was a very highly insulated building, very, very tight control on all the doors and ventilation, and underfloor heating, which could be cranked up before the event, and then a booster system of plant, which we could heat the air and blow into the space. Um, and on the outside of the building, which you might recognize, we've got uh, little gills, like on a, a fish in a way. This building breathes, it can be naturally ventilated, or when it's being mechanically ventilated, air can be sucked in at the bottom and blown out at the top. So hopefully we'd sorted the temperature problem out. The next thing we could influence was crowd, and we were very lucky because we had Chris Hoy on the jury, and he's a very um, good advice from him. He was describing how you go around the track, you're straining away, it's agony, the crowd are really cheering you on. And then you go down the home straight where the IOC officials are, the competitors, families, the judges, and it's dead silence. So we said, OK, what can we do about that? Well, we said, we'll try and wrap the crowd right around the track, move the officials and the press and all these quiet people as high up as possible and get a wall of sound. And the cycle track, the banking, as you might have noticed, is very steep. It's 42 degrees. The seats can only be 34 degrees. So normally in a velodrome, you have no seats around the bends because you can't really see. We insisted on putting some seats around the bend just to keep that crowd going around. And then tucked up high up on the bottom right, the majority in the, tucked up into the roof on this project, and I'll explain why later, with all with good views. And that shape developed, and we were really, really keen to get the crowd as close to the athletes as possible. So it's a very small venue, very tight, with hard surfaces, and we really kind of pumped up the acoustics for maximum effect. Now, this should be a movie that should work. 
No, next one. So um, we finished the building in February 2011. They rode round, they were very excited. And then February 2012, there was a test event, some of you may have been, uh, and it was a World Cup, so it was a proper event. Um, it was a qualification event for the Olympics, so the athletes were really trying. Um, and that was very successful. Uh, there should be a movie here now. So that was Chris Hoy winning the Kieran, and you hopefully got a sense of this kind of the noise, the proximity, the seats, and everything else. And you get this is from the one of the seats furthest away. You get this idea of this the gladiatorial arena and a sort of sense of the drama of it. Um, and Chris went at his fastest ever in that event, and um, you know came away really buzzing. So we had three world records for a World Cup, which is fantastic. So hopefully we've done a great job on the field of play. We've got a fast track. London should be a big success. I have to say the UCI have changed all the rules so we can't possibly win as many medals as we won in Beijing. But that's not enough really for an Olympics, is it? I mean, it's the greatest show on earth. Um, it's a massive televisual event and I think this building is probably the most successful television building in the history of mankind. I mean, it was absolutely extraordinary thing to look at. So, you know, where does London position itself in regard to that? Um, something more subtle, something more sustainable, something more efficient. But at the same time, we always had this feeling at the start of the Olympics, hmm, how on earth do we follow Beijing? It was incredible. But actually, when you look at that building, it's probably one of the most ridiculous buildings ever built, beautiful though it is, because it has so much steel in it. They put PVs on the top and call it sustainable. But we worked out it would take 2,000 years of those PVs to pay back the excess steel over and above a regular stadium like Sydney. Um, and there's an indication of the steel weights there. There's the inside of their um, velodrome. And so we said, you know, what could we do that's, you know, how do we get a fantastic looking architecture but actually fundamentally different in terms of its performance and efficiency? And the answer lay in Chris Hoy's thighs, really. Um, <laughs> and it's a bit like uh, Jim and Jim have alluded to how could we shrink the building, like the lycra around his thighs? perhaps not that stretch, but how could we shrink the whole thing, rather like the Lycra, to be really, really tight around the venue? And we knew that was good for acoustics and atmosphere. Um, and what we looked at was working very, very um, hard on the structure of the building with our engineer's expedition. Um, and we came up with a building that works at the top like a suspension bridge and comes down about eight metres with very taut structure. And then in the other direction, push the roof down really, really tight. That's where the, the banking is steep. Just... That's the track there where it's 42 degrees. This is where the track's at 12 degrees. And this is the majority of the crowd here. And then are just a few seats here. So we can bring the roof right down at these ends. And that gave us something which is very useful to architects and engineers. It gave us a double curvature, which is very strong and therefore very efficient. And from that shape, we built this roller coaster. Um, and actually that gas, the, the beam at the top is actually a recycled gas pipe from American oil industry, which we're very proud of. Um, and that was the shape that was the most efficient shape. You see the seats going on in the background, being laid on by precast. And what was exciting about that was the track sits in the middle with this beautiful geometry. The seats are very tight around the track. And then this wrapper, this envelope, is very tight around the seats. And that could communicate the geometry of the track through to the outside of the building. And hopefully, we could pick up the dynamism of the track on the outside, albeit it's rotated because the crowd are on the side.
But that wasn't quite enough. We wanted to really push this idea of efficiency. Um, so we challenged ourselves. We said, well, you know, you look at a bicycle. It's probably the greatest ever invention. It's so efficient. Could we make architecture and engineering anywhere near as close as efficient as a, as a bicycle? That's Victoria Pendleton's sprint bike, so it's a slightly unusual one. Um, so we set ourselves that challenge. You know, could we make the roof so incredibly light that it was like the spokes on the sort of finest wheel? And so we worked um, very closely with the engineers, and we, in the end, could span this structure, which is 130 metres, with just 36 millimetre cables by locking it into the structure and everything else. These are the cables laid out in Germany, being stretched. There should be another little movie now. Oh dear. I'll pass on that because I know time's limited. They had a little movie of this cable net going up and it's the most amazing thing because without any scaffolding you could lay these cables on the ground and tension them up onto that ring beam you saw and pull it into place and the net result is this amazing sort of form of pure structure and those are just the cables with nodes which, which um, link them together on top of which is a safety net. So very quick, very cheap, low carbon, um, very low risk health and safety wise because there's no scaffolding, no one working at a height. And that really was like 1972, the Munich Olympics, which had a beautiful cable net structure. They had perspex on top because it was a cover in a park. We'd already established we needed really good insulation on this venue to keep, keep the temperature up and make it cheap to run afterwards. So we devised a series of panels which just dropped on, and that formed us a very cheap roof. Everything's just simple materials, plywood dropped on, movement joints because the thing moves up and down a bit, very lightweight, very efficient. And when we then put some timber on the outside, that gave what's now known as the Pringle. <laughs> so very logical and hopefully a sort of form this distinctive, very much London, came out of that ethos and can stand proud next to Beijing in its own way. And when you measure up, um, Beijing had 85 kilograms per square metre of steel in the roof. Sydney was 55, a slightly uh, smaller span. Athens was looks efficient, but those tubes have got enormous amounts of steel in, um, 250 kilograms, and we were down at 30 kilograms. So on a sort of purely mathematical basis, we were very tight. So very importantly, um, what about afterwards? Well, we, th we branded this idea that the Olympics were just a housewarming party, and we were really doing everything for afterwards. Um, and one, of the, one good example of this is daylight. The Olympic Broadcast Service don't want any daylight in the venues, and they told us to design them blacked out. We thought that was madness, so we designed a series of roof lights because for the next 50, 100 years, people want to cycle around in daylight. We did lots of studies, and we put roof lights in so you can cycle around that building with no lights on. So after the games, it'd be very, very cheap to run. Manchester Velodrome costs over £200,000 a year to run. If you look at previous Olympics, 1948 at the top left, down to Beijing, of those 16, seven of them no longer exist. So there's a whole social dimension to this as well. The next slide shows what they're being used for now. Some are supermarkets, biodomes, and archaeological ruins in Rome. So we look back to 1948. There is a velodrome in London. It's in Herne Hill. It's much bigger. I love this picture. It's 20,000 people standing outside. Definitely the most sustainable Olympics, whatever anyone says today. <laughs> but importantly, a very nice connection between inside and outside. So we actually started our project with this sketch which was about inside and outside, about the park, about legacy, about getting people involved and we developed a section which split the seats as I explained before and had a ring of glass at low level and that allowed us to bring the park right up to that ring of glass and I think for me one of the most exciting things about the project was the idea a child in the East End could walk up to that glass, 
look in, still be in the park, and see the likes of Chris Hoy training inside. It'd be fantastically exciting. So we've designed something which works in reverse. Really. We designed this Velo Park, um, which has a one-mile cycle circuit, six and a half kilometres of mountain biking, a BMX course, and of course a track circuit in the middle. So afterwards, fantastic resource for London, somewhere to go and cycle off the road. And we worked very recently with the OPLC to refine this, fit it into the landscape. There's a movie which probably won't work now. Indeed. <laughs> oh well. There was a, a movie showing it integrated into the park and how all the cycle circuits work. Um, it's all about teamwork, and we had a fantastic team on this. And I think, actually, no one's quite touched on it, but I think the whole process of building these buildings under an enormous amount of pressure has been a good um, chitty, really, for the British construction industry. You know, they've got it done. The very good health and safety record, it's there. And just finally, um, we're doing a small project. If anyone wants to help donate some money towards it, Hernhill Velodrome, 1948. We thought the nice idea about legacy would be to help 1948 survive beyond 2012. And we were very concerned that a new velodrome would put the old one out of business. So the two should really work together, especially since the banking at um, Hearn Hill is only 26 degrees. So if you want to ride, I'd go there first. <laughs> OK, thank you. So I think we've just had from three architects a demonstration in a way of, on the one hand, the necessity of resilience on the part of architects in working on these kinds of projects. Each of them referred to the need to design, redesign, and keep working at it, both to bring down costs and also to fit what was a slightly changing brief. I think we've also seen evidence of a certain humor that keeps them going right the way through. When Jim Eyre shows a slide of the USA beating Britain <laughs> at basketball, 52-49, you know that he's not lost his sense of humor throughout this. But from the position of the ODA, there's another important lesson, for me at least, which was that at the outset, we were faced with a choice at a time when everyone was talking about needing to do this within a budget and within a very short space of time, we were faced with a choice between using architects who had designed as specialists sports venues across the world and inviting architects who had never designed one of these facilities. And I can tell you, and Ricky will I'm sure support this, it was a real struggle to persuade the ODA that we should employ architects who had never designed a velodrome, who'd never designed an aquatic centre, who'd never designed a basketball arena, or indeed not even, as Jim confessed, attended an Olympic Games. <laughs> but I think what you've seen uh, this evening and you would experience when you visit the park is that that faith in choosing architects who had a capacity for invention and responsiveness to the brief and I think Mike demonstrated that perfectly with this slide of Chris Hoy, and it was actually vindicated in the, in, in the result. So I'd like to open it to questions. We've got about five or ten minutes for some questions, and let's begin at the back. And I think there is probably a roving mic, 
And maybe you would also like to identify yourselves as a questioner, if you may. Hi, my name is Asil. Um, firstly, I'd like to thank you because I'm actually an East Londoner. I was born about 10 minutes away from the site and I lived there for most of my life and went to school around there. Uh, and even more so, uh, the Carpenters Estate was my mum's territory. She was the housing manager. And I went there every summer, of course. Cheap uh, babysitter. Um, so actually, my question is, in the legacy of uh, the Olympic Park. And as you touched on, um, Stratford is a very deprived area. And I suppose my own interest, as well as everyone else, is how do you create a mixed community within that? Thank you. I think that's a really fundamental question, but I think it's a question which we'd, I'd like to pick up when we come back with Andy Altman in a moment, because I think that's really one of the biggest tasks he faces. Obviously, the ODA, in the early stages of doing this work, has set a brief for the Olympic Village that it should be a mixed community and that the housing provided at the Olympic Village in the long term should be both a combination of um, social housing and equally rented housing and also housing for, for in private ownership. But perhaps we could pick that up when Andy has spoken, because I think it is pretty fundamental to the issues that he's facing. Further questions on these projects or indeed the principal? The couple of questions at the back there, do you want to take right to the back first and then one in from the back? Hi, my name's David. Uh, I have a question specifically about the basketball arena. It was, you mentioned that there was different owners of the kind of um, parts of it. Uh, it was kind of like who, Explain a bit more about that process and what's actually going to happen to the basketball arena afterwards. So my question, what's happening after? Yes. I think that uh, it, rather than, I think what, what the ODA decided was that rather than take ownership themselves of a basketball arena it's in its entirety and then work out how to dispose of it, it's actually more economic to, to hire in parts or have somebody actually own a part make them responsible for taking it away and for disposing of it in whether it's reused in, in some other way. So it does actually make sense. I mean, the seating is, is something that's not uncommon. You know, you, you see seating in temporary venues, and what we have is just the same. There's just more of it. The most unusual thing, of course, is the, the main structure itself. And it, in a way, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's quite an interesting point. If I could slightly deviate from this, the, from your question, or where you're going with it, is that what's happened in a way is that because of the economics, the, there is no money available to pay a premium to make that structure reconfigurable in lots of different ways. Because, and I can understand that. It would be expensive to do that. So it's rather than create a system that you can use uh, elsewhere in different climates and different places, we've got a building that really needs to be used in its entirety, the, the envelope, which it can be if somebody's got a, a similar use. So the contractor is left, this is BAR, they're called, the Scottish outfit. They, they're responsible for taking away that part of the building, and it's up to them, effectively, how to, how to dispose of it. I think the ODA will have a say over this, but it's, they actually own it. Plant and so on, I said before, simply hired in. Um, one or two other parts are actually 
ODA's responsibility to remove, like the field of play floor slab? I, I don't really want to get into the detail of this, but obviously one of the issues that is raised is the relationship between the ODA in London and its equivalent in Rio and the International Olympic Committee. If the International Olympic Committee, which runs the Games every time, wants to have a more sustainable Games, they should be thinking more about the issue of which of the facilities is going to be temporary, which is going to be permanent, and is there a possibility of taking the temporary facilities from place to place rather than obliging each city yeah, to I'm begin again yeah. as Jim has described. So, I mean, if I could just come back on that. I think, uh, in a way, my vision, and it's the vision that sort of only came out of doing this project, was that, you know, perhaps there's a possibility that the IOC should own these buildings yeah. and should be responsible for maintaining them, taking them from one country to the next, particularly the temporary buildings, of course. And that does also open up the possibility that the Olympics could take place in smaller countries or groups of smaller countries, which I think would be very interesting because, mm. as we've seen from Athens uh, uh, you know, and ourselves, you need to be a pretty rich country to, to host the Olympics. And it would be great to see it spread out a bit more. There was a question one row down from the back. <coughs> Same question, right. Another topic. Back there. Good evening, it's John Hawkins. Uh, to, congratulations to everyone involved. I mean, it really is a great celebration for the British construction industry. Um, until recently, I was uh, working for the Institution of Civil Engineers, so I know quite a lot of what's been going on. Um, you mentioned cost and the pressures on cost. Um, in the original bidding document, I think the cost was around two and a half to three billion pounds, and the, the final cost is around nine billion. And I just wondered, do you think this is a case in the original bidding document of optimism bias in the kind of the best case scenario? I don't think any of us here could really hazard an answer as to what the basis was for the original bidding document because I think that frankly everyone was aware that it was going to cost more than two and a half billion. In fairness it has to be said that the 9.3 was arrived at only in 2007 and within that there were some really hefty increases for what I think would what everyone would recognize were unforeseen circumstances namely in the area of security because after the events of July 2005 in London, there was a big increase in the funds that were going to be required for security. But I think fundamentally, the 2.5 the billion figure was a figure that had been arrived at, not on the back of an envelope, but certainly at 2004 prices rather than 2012 prices. And a great deal of the difficulty that the ODA had in 2006-07 and indeed 8 were, was caused by the pressures coming from the press who were reacting quite with, as you might expect to an increase in the budget from a published headline figure of 2.5 to nearly 9 billion 
it has to be said that the ODA managed to deliver the buildings and the park at a figure well below its own budget, which was roughly about six, just under seven. So the guys to the left of me contributed to that, and they probably somewhat rue the fact that some of the money that they saved um, might have been spent on their own projects. I, I think the. I mean, Jim in particular, I think, you know, letting go, having to let go of that geodesic dome proposal was a painful process, as he made quite clear. <laughs> um, and seeing it on the screen, I too regret its departure. Um, but in 2007-8, with the recession coming, it, was a, it would have been a very, very difficult call for the ODA to have taken the risk. I think, Nick, if I can yeah. just add, I mean, obviously, one, one of the issues um, to perhaps contemplate is um, how, how do you judge whether it's a worthwhile investment, whether it's two or nine billion? And, and uh, just two things. One is perhaps what we're talking about is a much bigger project here, of which this is the initial part, which is an investment in, as I called it, and everyone here, mm -hmm. I think, subscribes to it, and Andy will confirm a rebalancing of London. I mean, that's, that's, that's a bigger, bigger issue, and therefore how much that amount is and what time scale do you measure that? And the other thing is let's consider that the government in the same time frame, because of other things going on in the financial markets, you know, uh, spent three or four times the amount of an Olympics to sustain a bank or two. So it's a question of also relative values that... Uh, a nation actually puts forward and decides to invest in. And that's not to in any way uh, belittle the importance of the point that you made, but I think no, one I mean, has I to think, see it in perspective. I think as Ricky suggests, really, it's partly a question of whether you re regard this as a cost of the Olympics or an investment in London. And if we all think now what London might feel like in the summer of 2012 without an Olympics, and you imagine it actually happening in Paris in the, I think we would, all, we would probably most of us feel quite envious of the French for having grabbed it and, be do, and, and, being, and running with it as they would be question sorry yeah go on Michael. I might just add to that I mean as a designer on the inside Microphone. of that it's, it's quite a difficult process to be in because the press are having a field day reporting costs uh, you're under enormous pressure um, and actually, the cost of the venues is any part of the story. Um, for instance, the velodrome was 1% of that budget. Yeah. So you, you're only in control as a designer of so much. Um, you know, it's a massive infrastructure project. And I would say, um, taking Nick's point there, you know, the jobs it's created and what it's done for the British construction industry is a very positive thing. I think just finally, we, you know, it's very tense when you're in that sort of cauldron with all the project managers and everyone. And to be absolutely blunt, at a certain point, we just turned around to them and said, forget it. The only way these projects work is to report cost to government incrementally because they don't like bad news. And I think that pretty much sums up the way it works. Tony. Uh, Tony Travers from the LSE. I mean, these are the London Olympic Games linking parts of London to other parts of London. And it's a London project. And indeed, we doubtless would have been regretting it if it had been going on in Paris. But what about... Is there anything in the architecture as it has been selected or executed that is of London? I mean, what is it about this that makes it a London architectural outcome? 
Go on, can I? Uh, yeah. Uh, Go on. Um, we didn't do Georgian facades, but I do think in our, particular <laughs> case, in our particular case, we were very keen to pick up on that amazing kind of um, engineering skill of Brunel, this sort of crossover between architecture and engineering that Britain has been fantastic at producing, and in a way is a sort of, I guess, a remnant of the Industrial Revolution, if you like, and we felt we should celebrate that. And you look at sustainability, you look at how people talk about it, we really should be doing model projects that show how you can do more with less. And I think London has a unique position with the intellectual and historical expertise it has to make those demonstration projects. So in an abstract way, not in a, in a bonding to context way, I'll let others talk about that, perhaps Ricky, you know, we can do demonstration projects that res reflect how we think. Plus we took on a, a very difficult East End site, basically. And I think um, there would have been the temptation, possibly, to think about a greenfield site, an, an easier site to build venues. It certainly would have been cheaper. And I think that juxtaposition, in the end, is uh, something um, that uh, comes out of the approach from designers to the site and the mix with the brief, it gives you something that's very unique and very London, basically. Yeah. Well, mine was a takeaway, actually, <laughs> or a pop-up restaurant, so... Tony, I would say two things. One is to base the whole project around a park, I mean, of course, there are parks in other cities, but the determination to create a new park for East London to match those that are in the west of the city was a, I won't say it's peculiarly British, but it's a particularly British thing. And I'd say the second thing would be to achieve it at probably about half the cost that it would have taken elsewhere in the world, or to do it on half the budget that would have been available elsewhere in the world. Maybe that would be a point to perhaps bring Andy Altman into the story and invite him to just introduce the Olympic Legacy Company's role in the next stages of taking this project forward. Because there been there was a the first question was very much about legacy and we clearly need to, and want to come back to that. So Andy. Press the arrow. Yeah. That's it. Great. Um, well, I'm not. Um, thank you very much, Nick. And I'm. Um, I don't have a presentation or PowerPoint because I was asked really for more to be a discussion. But um, as an um, occupational hazard, being trained as a planner, I had to sneak in just a couple of slides. Um, I guess I don't. Uh, what I'm going to just talk about for for a minute, though, is. Um, something which is uh, you don't get to put up great buildings and is a bit less uh, sexy and uh, you know compelling visually, but is uh, I think really important when we talk about legacy and what the London Legacy Development Corporation does, and and it's a bit about not the physical architecture but actually the institutional architecture, uh, because I think one of the things that will make what uh, that will ensure, or at least the ingredient for uh, a platform for success of everything that you've seen in terms of the great, the architecture, the master planning, everything Ricky presented, all the fantastic venues and the parklands that have been built, is what sustains that 
you know, into the future? Uh, what ensures that, in fact, that legacy um, goes not only beyond games, but does achieve what the aspiration was, which is to create, uh, as Ricky pointed out, a piece of city. So I think one of the sort of brilliant things that's been done in the organization uh, of the games um, has been creating, the organ creating this kind of institutional architecture. The ODA, which was focused on delivery and the building and the, the sort of the infrastructure of the site, LOCOG that'll build, uh, that's, that will host the games, and then now the London Legacy Development Corporation, which was set up three years before games, which was incredibly, you know, uh, had a lot of foresight to do that, to be ultimately the client to ensure that the legacy is taken forward on what ultimately is a 20 to 25 year project. So I think the very interesting piece of legacy is not talked about, but is the, the legacy of actually the land, the land itself as a public resource held in the public trust. Um, this is extraordinary. If you think the aspiration to create in London, the rebalancing of the growth of London, East and West London, a new center for growth and regeneration in some of the poorest boroughs in uh, not only London but in the UK, um, that land is an incredibly scarce and valuable resource located on the transport infrastructure that Ricky showed and now with the incredible venues, parklands that give it an amazing uh, emerging sense uh, of city that will be there. And that 350 plus acres is something that will be held in trust. So I put up this slide because if you go back historically and you look at how urban form and how great pieces of the city have been created, you know, again, you can look back to a tradition very much of London, which are the great estates. So the estates, the areas that are much, you know, beloved today, whether it's Mayfair, Chelsea, Marleybone, these areas were very much about great estates that were created that still exist today and were very much about the interplay of creating a piece of city. At the time, you have to remember, these were suburban, exurban areas of city. We're not in the center of the city as they are today, um, but were nurtured through the very conscious building of a city, through the quality of design, the quality of the space, and taking a hundred-year view, not an immediate short-term view, not saying we have a fantastic Olympic Park, the games were great, pack up, job done, we delivered, you know, great venues, great games, and everything will now naturally happen. That could have very much been an attitude. One could say, we'll take the, don't have the slide of the master plan, but we'll just take that and sort of sell off parcels, walk away, let it evolve naturally, leave it all to the market. One has to respect what the market can do, but also in the context. So another great, I'd say, legacy, and can set up for the discussion, and that I believe that the Legacy Corporation, set up as now a mayoral development corporation, equipped with those very tools that make, I think, the possibility and will make great design happen and a great place emerge and the kind of vibrant and mixed community emerge is that institutional architecture. And that institutional architecture is having a company which owns the land so it can act as, I would say, a 21st century version of a great estate but a great estate in a different sense of not just being a private great estate, but actually a public great estate, that the park will be held in public trust as open space, that the land can produce the kind of quality of design and development and mixed income communities that one wants to see, and that we create a, uh, a, you know, what will be a wonderful, wonderful legacy uh, for the city and takes a, as I say, 100-year view, a corporation that's here for 25, 30 years, or more till it actually that piece of city comes together and is just integrated as that A to Z showed just a piece of London but that doesn't just happen as is its 
or, you know, free market organically just occurs as a sort of act of nature. It is the constant nurturing, the constant decision making, the kind of same deliberate, I think, uh, execution uh, that happened. I should say, do it. it's very American to say execution. It's a horrible term. Delivery is much better. Delivery, uh, as uh, Americans are executing all the time, is the, um, you know, as you create it. So I'm going to move on because I think the conversation will be more uh, interesting. But, I mean, these are the kinds of pieces city that, that emerge in London. I mean, and you know places that are much loved. This is Ladbrook Estate and and uh, Notting Hill and the areas around that. And you can see that form of the way that terraces, the crescents, the public spaces. I mean, these are the kinds of things we can create. Not necessarily, I'm saying, in the mimicking the architecture, but in terms of the urban form and how one achieves that urban form through this institutional architecture of having land, of having a corporation set up, and caring about design and building capacity for design within uh, the corporation itself. So those are the kinds of things. And interesting, if you go back, I mean, here's Victoria Park. You see Olympic Park in purple. Victoria Park was in the suburbs then. Olympic Park, as you can see, was there's nothing even there. These pieces of city building around, as Nick said, particularly you know London tradition of great public spaces, great parks, and the city fills in around them. The South Bank, of course, where you know Tate Modern is, you know the whole South Bank from the 1951 exhibition Festival of Britain was considered an edge of the city, and now is at very much the center of the city. The river was considered an edge of the city until very recently. So these pieces of city, these events can be used and we design them to knit together a great piece of city. How we take iconic venues, the orbit actually has been completed, uh, was opened on Friday, but take a stadium, take the aquatics we just heard about, removing the water polo just uh, north of aquatics, the orbit built, but how do we take those venues and that architecture and begin to translate it into a piece of city by bringing design, this is Jim Corner's work, you may be here tonight, who did the High Line, bringing them in to create, to go from concourse space to what can be a great attraction, building off of those venues, but filling that in with the kind of public spaces, public amenities, walkways, the glue, the, the kind of urban uh, form that will create a piece of city and ultimately evolve into great neighborhoods. So with that, I'll leave off. But I think the vision of what we can do and the way it's been set up for legacy, I think, is a, a very, very interesting part and often untold part of the story uh, of a great success in how, uh, and how London has organized itself to deliver not only games, but legacy. So we are going to open this out again to questions, but I'd really like to begin by asking Andy to pick up the question that came from the audience a moment ago. Basically, how do you create mixed communities within the vision that you've just described? Yeah. Um, no, I think that's, that is a really good question. And, and, and Nick described what happened with the, uh, the Athletes Village, which was very, you know, from the beginning was uh, very much 50% of the uh, 3,000 units uh, will be affordable. Uh, uh, and a mix of affordability. Um, and we very much have taken that each neighborhood, each community should be diverse and should allow for mixed income. So overall, in terms of the master plan that we've uh, produced and what's going for planning approval, have looked at 35% of all the housing, there'll be 7,000 units of housing, uh, will be affordable, be a range of affordability built into each part of the park so that we do have a diverse community. So laying out that policy framework to make sure that what's built 
actually um, will ensure mixed communities uh, is very fundamental to uh, to the to the design of uh, of, uh, of how the park will go forward. It's also around diversity of housing types. It's around diversity of making sure we have family housing. Uh, we have looking at 42 percent uh, of the units being uh, family housing, ensuring that there are those places for larger families and families in East London uh, to uh, to find a place uh, in the Olympic Park. So, and again, very much designed from the beginning. I was also to say physically that gets to kind of the mix, but but I think also the physical integration that this isn't an island, this isn't a gated community, that continuing to make all those physical connections to the surrounding communities and the local boroughs, what you're doing is bringing the city into the site. Each of those places where there's a temporary venue, such as basketball, becomes a new neighborhood. And the city starts to you know, make its way in, centered around the park. So the physical integration, the social integration in terms of assuring uh, affordability, the building of community centers and spaces of what Stephen Witherford, places of exchange, as he uh, taught me quite a bit of how we design these public spaces, bringing in the diversity of programming so that it reflects East London and very much is about East London are all, um, I think, about what the DNA of the site should be about. You showed that slide of the great London estates, um, and you referred to the fact that, of course, many of them were established more than 100 years, 200 years ago. You talked, you sli slipped slightly between talking about a 100-year view and a 20-year mm. view, mm. and a government probably has a five-year view. <laughs> and I just wonder what pressures you're under to deliver revenue yeah. in the short term through selling off land yeah. that will in some way perhaps inhibit yeah. the development of the park by the Development Corporation over a 20, 30, even 100 year view? Yeah. Well, I think that's a good question. I mean, there isn't, there's of course the, the um, you know, the sort of return to the government of, uh, you know, of proceeds over time, but the I think, Nick, I would say is that I've been very encouraged because the way, and this has been, Boris has been very supportive of this, the mayor, of taking, by taking the long view, by setting up the corporation, um, as opposed to just saying um, your goal in the corporation is just to sell off land, but actually to maintain the freehold to be the long-term owner and uh, of this estate, of this land, and of this place, um, has very much been about establishing quality in the beginning and establishing um, the neighborhoods in the beginning as opposed to looking for an immediate sale of land. And in fact, the way we approach, this is a bit dry, but the way we approach the whole transaction, how to do the first neighborhood, Chaba Manor is our first example. So where the basketball arena is will become the place for up to what could be 800 plus units of housing. And we look very much to create that housing um, as being a mix of densities, terraced housing, uh, some higher density housing along the park, uh, smaller muse housing, smaller squares, but very important that we want to get that character right. If we had just said, let's sell it, you know, as quickly as we can for what's the best, you know, uh, return immediately, you probably might have a very different urban form. You might have gone for a, you know, much more immediate, maybe high-rise development or something that might not have set the tone. So I think we're in a good place because the deal between the mayor and the government, which said that um, you don't have to, what had originally been a deal, to return returns immediately, pay off debt, actually said, we're going to take a long-term view because actually value creation, you'll get greater proceeds, the better urban quality of the urban environment and the public space you produce. So the mandate for us is quality design, 
create those great neighborhoods, create great public space, that will return value. It may take a longer horizon, but ultimately will be of greater value. And I think that is a lesson of the great estates. Look at the value of those neighborhoods today versus what they were 100 years ago. There's no question, and I think we've been fortunate to be put in that position without a pressure uh, to have to do that in an immediate sense, but take a long view. Ricky, um, you've just heard Andy express really quite an optimistic view. You've been involved in this, as you pointed out, from the moment, from the period of the LDA through the ODA to the present. What are your fears? Well, you know, I, I, I do feel... Or do I you share that optimism? No, I, I do feel optimistic because I think probably we collectively, <clears throat> both sides of sort of this platform, got one thing right, which is the veins of actually making a piece of city, a bit like the New York grid, uh, that over time things will happen that Andy won't control for sure, whatever you say now in four years' time, change of government, crisis, whatever, it won't happen. But just as happened in New York City where th this very simple grid was laid out and the economy changed, politics changed, what you have is a, is a very resilient um, f fabric. And I think more or less that's there, and, and the connections are very important, mm -hmm. as Andy has said. And in the middle of it are a series of jewels, which is quite interesting. Most, of it, most <coughs> importantly, I think, apart from even the buildings, is the park itself. And I think if you put those things together, uh, perhaps you do have a cocktail which over time will be very, very, uh, well, will sustain things that we don't know about. And I think that's what good cities are about because they become more complex over time rather than more simplistic. Jim, Jim, yeah. I would say perhaps the, the biggest challenge, the thing that needs protecting most is the maintenance of the park. You know, you've got a very, quite a large park and it's beautifully landscaped. It's clear it's going to be stunning. Mm -hmm. but maybe you could just say, tell us how, how, how that's envisaged. Because you know, I think that the worst fear, I think if I had a fear, would be that that park wasn't maintained. You know, we saw it in mm. Liverpool and the Garden Festival. Yeah. You might remember that. Just be interested. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I think no. I think that's absolutely absolutely a right point because as, um, there are absolutely beautiful parklands that put in and and um, and um, biodiversity that's been built in. Um, it, it again goes back to this question of how we've been set up. And one of the, I think, the principal roles of the Legacy Development Corporation is actually it is a park company. I mean, it's um, and one of our roles, and uh, very importantly, and with government, have said that we need to fund the operation of that. So we're actually setting up that capacity and uh, to maintain the park. Uh, we've let we have a long-term contract now with someone to help us operate the park. Uh, we actually hired the uh, former chief executive of the Royal Parks to come and run the park to bring in, you know, the expertise. And why would someone who is the chief executive of the Royal Parks come to the Olympic Park? Because they find it it's such an exciting piece of creating this and being able to attract that expertise, set up that capacity. Because what's different about this park is going to be maintaining not only the quality of the landscape, and it's not just about cutting the grass, but it's about the programming, the, the, the bringing life to that public space, and the integration of that public space with the venues and with the residential as a complete piece of city. So it's a bit of a broader job. So I think the, the encouraging part you should feel is um, that the company is there to do it, and it hasn't just said, uh, let's go out and find a grass cutter. Sure. Uh, we're going to have to close fairly soon, but I'd like to give the audience a chance to ask questions if they have a couple of two or three questions. One in the middle here. 
We've got the microphone. Thank you. Tony Kinnikinny. Um, sorry if I'm putting a bit of a damper on, but nobody's mentioned the main stadium. And there seems to be, that seems to be quite controversial. Is, is it possible that might become a, a white elephant? Can't escape, can't escape the answer. Uh, no, I, I, I don't. And I think, you know, uh, look, the stadium uh, was always designed um, to be at its core an athletics uh, stadium. Um, so you know, we have the 2017 World Athletics Championship coming, um, and it's going to have be multi-purpose and multi-sport, which is what we're trying to do. I don't think the question is, is football there or not there? The defining question of whether legacy is a success. The stadium will be successful. If football's there, that's great. If concerts are there, that's great. It will be a venue that will be used. Importantly, though, I think it's the context of what we've talked about, that the stadium isn't an island. Well, it is actually an island, but it is, it is not unto itself. It, it, this isn't a park that only has one thing. It's about the multiplicity. So it is the stadium. It is the aquatics. It is the fantastic Velo Center, which is amazing that's been built. It is the parkland. It is aquatics. It's the mix of all of it, and it's not any one thing, which is why it's not going to be a white elephant, because it's going to sit and contribute activity and be a part of a great place. Thank you, Mark Flessing. Um, I run an affordable housing company called Pocket. One of the legacies that doesn't get mentioned often is actually what it does to the kind of firms that you're running and your position in the international marketplace. Um, 20 years ago, um, uh, Nick will attest to this, it would have been inconceivable that there would be architectural firms in London operating on the scale that they're operating on today and internationally. What I'd like to ask you, particularly picking up on the point you were making earlier, Nick, do you feel that there is a legacy here that you can export about how to make these great big projects more sustainable? Because it does seem completely daft that we're reinventing the wheel with lots of these structures again and again. Is that something that we could be uniquely very good at? Come on, Mike. I'll just kick off with a quick anecdote. I did a presentation not dissimilar to this in a primary school, and the eight-year-olds asked two really good questions like that. The first one was, well... If you're saying these Olympics are sustainable, why aren't they in the same country every time? <laughs> and then the next, one, next hand went up and said, yeah, but if they're sustainable, why are they in different stadia? Why don't you just have one big stadia or one smaller one and just take longer to do it? So we are fairly fixed in the way we think about these things. And I think when you look back to the 1948 Austerity Olympics, if you read that amazing book on it, our standards, our expectations are so incredibly high in terms of you know, performance, cameras, lights, all of that. You look at the recession that's going on around the world, and I think you know it's a good moment to look at what we actually expect out of these events, let alone where they are and the level of comfort we stage them to. So it's not quite an answer to your question, but I do think that uh, there's plenty of evidence that Rio has the people developing in Rio have spent a lot of time in London, and there's a lot of advice travelling from London to Rio. Whether it can be, as Mike is saying. You know, brought into a corpus of knowledge that the IOC can carry from place to place, whether we can use the experience we've had to export elsewhere. I mean, it takes time for people to recognize achievement. My experience of most architectural projects, however good they are, is that the architects who've designed them don't benefit for two or three years afterwards. We'll have to see what happens, I think. 
I mean, it's an interesting question. I think um, that uh, there's no question that the you know the expertise that we've gained is exportable. I mean, we can we can do that, and I think we will be doing it um, elsewhere. There are actually you've got three practices here that are already established internationally anyway. I mean, we've all been working abroad, so that isn't a problem. I think the one thing that um, the one real benefit, I think, you know, if you like, commercially and and uh, in a sense, in terms of the diversity of work that we might get involved in as a practice is it opening up the possibility of working on sports buildings because I think as you alluded to at the very beginning Nick that uh, it was a bit of a closed market I mean a couple of firms only doing almost all the stadia and nobody else getting a look in um, and this has shown that actually it, it isn't rocket science <laughs> any intelligent architect and creative architect can design these buildings I think we're really running out of time. There are plenty of questions in the audience, and maybe we can pick up some of those informally, but I think we have to draw it to a close now. I'd really like to thank Ricky um, for hosting this event in the first place in LSE. Clearly, I also want to congratulate Jim Eyre, Jim Herovin, and uh, Mike Taylor for their presentations. I'd like to thank you all for coming, and I would like to thank Andy Altman for giving us some insight as to the challenges that face him and wish him every success over the next 100 years. Thank you. <laughs>